Welcome to another edition of Womance's public access read-along of Jane Eyre. I am your podcast co-host, Isabeau, and I do the even chapters. And I'm your odd chapter co-host, Morgan. We are indeed pulling up to an even chapter, chapter 12. Morgan, if you'd give us a recap of what happened in chapter 11. So much. Jane arrives at Thornfield Hall. She meets Mrs. Fairfax, discovers she is not the lady of the house this mysterious Mr. Rochester is, and that her ward will be this small French girl who is uh, very theatrical. And in fact, her mother was a bit of a performer as well. She also tours Thornfield and discovers the third floor, which is very, what do we say? Uh, Spooky, (laughs) full of old furniture. Spooky, spooky. We've discovered that uh, Miss Fairfax uh, has a certain class distinction as housekeeper and widow of the town clergy. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of like our scene now. I don't know. Am I missing any key points? That was all of it. With that, chapter 12. The promise of a smooth career, which my first calm introduction to Thornfield Hall seemed to pledge, was not belied on a longer acquaintance with the place and its inmates. I do want to call attention to the fact that, like, she constantly refers to people as inmates of places. Yeah. Rather than, like, residents or, like, the people who lived there. Like, there's this idea of confinement in all of the spaces that we've encountered. Just note. Mrs. Fairfax turned out to be what she appeared, a placid-tempered, kind-natured woman of competent education and average intelligence. My pupil was a lively child who had been spoilt and indulged, and therefore was sometimes wayward, but as she was committed entirely to my care and no injudicious interference from any quarter ever thwarted my plans for her improvement, she soon forgot her little freaks and uh, became obedient and teachable. She soon forgot... Her little freaks. Her little freaks. She had no great talents, no marked traits of character, no peculiar development of feeling or taste, which raised her one inch above the ordinary level of childhood. But neither had she any deficiency or vice which had sunk her below it. She had made reasonable progress, entertained for me a vivacious, though perhaps not very profound, affection. (laughs) Jesus. And by her simplicity, gay prattle, and efforts to please inspired me in return with a degree of attachment sufficient to make us both content in each other's society. This book values seriousness above all else. Seriously. I'm like, deep attachment. Like, whatever. This par parenthes will be thought cool language by persons who entertain solemn doctrines about the angelic nature of children and the duty of those charged with their education to conceive for them an idolatrous devotion. Oh, Charlotte doesn't like kids. But I am not writing to flatter parental egotism, to echo Kant or prop up humbug. I am merely telling the truth. I felt a conscientious solicitude for Adele's welfare and progress and a quiet liking for her little self, just as I cherished toward Mrs. Fairfax, a thankfulness for her kindness and a pleasure in her society, proportionate to the tranquil regard she had for me and the moderation of her mind and character. Anybody may blame me who likes. When I add further that now and then when I took a walk by myself in the grounds, 
when I went down to the gates and looked through them along the road, or when Adele played with her nurse and Mrs. Fairfax made jellies in the storeroom. I climbed the three staircases, raised the trap door of the attic, and having reached the leads, looked out afar over the sequestered field and hill and along the dim skyline, that when I longed for a power of vision, which might overpass that limit, which might reach the busy world, towns, regions full of life, I had heard of but never seen, and then I desired more of practical experience than I possessed, more of intercourse with my kind, of acquaintance with variety of character, than was here within my reach. I valued what was good in Mrs. Fairfax and what was good in Adele, but I believed in the existence of other and more vivid kinds of goodness, and what I believed in, I wished to behold. Who blames me? Many, no doubt, and I shall be called discontented. I could not help it. The restlessness was in my nature. It agitated me to pain sometimes. Then my sole relief was to walk along the corridor of the third story, backwards and forwards, safe in silence and solitude of the spot, and allow my mind's eye to dwell on whatever bright visions rose before it, and certainly they were many and glowing, to let my heart be heaved by the exultant movement which, while it swelled it in trouble, expanded it with life, and best of all to open my inward ear to the tale that was never ended, a tale my imagination created and narrated continuously, quickened with all of incident, life, fire, feeling that I desired and had not in my actual existence. So she's just pacing on the parapet back, forth, back, forth. It is in vain to say human beings ought to be satisfied with tranquility. They must have action, and they will make it if they cannot find it. Millions are condemned to a stiller doom than mine, and millions are in silent revolt against their lot. Nobody knows how many rebellions besides political rebellions ferment in the masses of life which people earth. Women are supposed to be very calm generally, but women feel just as men feel. They need exercise for their faculties and a field for their efforts as much as their brothers do. They suffer from too rigid a restraint, too absolute a stagnation, precisely as men would suffer, and it is narrow-minded in their more privileged fellow creatures to say that they ought to confine themselves to making puddings and knitting stockings, to playing on the piano and embroidering bags, is thoughtless to condemn them or laugh at them if they seek to do more or learn more than custom has pronounced necessary for their sex. Charlotte. Mmm, hello and welcome. I wonder if Charlotte even conceived of, like, Jane Eyre as a separate entity from herself. No, I think she probably did in conscious moments, but it's so clear that even in like the fact that she didn't edit herself out at all, that she and Jane are very close Venn diagrams, in fact, a circle. But then it's also worth pointing out, like we can clearly see when the shift happens. Yeah, so we just had that amazing proto-suffragette speech. And then we have, when thus alone, I not unfrequently heard Grace Poole's laugh. The same peal, the same low, slow, ha. Ah, which when first heard had thrilled me. I heard too her eccentric murmurs, stranger than her laugh. There were days when she was quite silent, but then there were others when I could not account for the sound she made. Sometimes I saw her. She would come out of her room with a basin, or plate, or a tray in her hand, go down to the kitchen and shortly return, generally. Oh, romantic reader, forgive me for telling the plain truth, bearing a pot of porter. Her appearance always acted as a damper to the curiosity raised by her oral oddities. Hard-featured and staid, she had no point to which interest could attach. I made some attempts to draw her into conversation, but she seemed a person of few words. A monosyllabic reply usually cut short every effort of that sort. The other members of the household, V, John and his wife, Leah, the housemaid, and Sophie, the French nurse, were decent people, but in no respect remarkable. With Sophie, I used to talk French, and sometimes I asked her questions about her native country, but she was 
was not of a descriptive or narrative turn and generally gave such vapid and confused answers as were calculated rather to check than encourage inquiry. October, November, December passed by. One afternoon in January, Mrs. Fairfax had begged a holiday for Adele because she had a cold and as Adele seconded the request with an adder that reminded me how precious occasional holidays had been to me in my own childhood, I accorded it, deeming that I did well in showing pliability on the point. It was a fine, calm day, though very cold. I was tired of sitting still in the library, though a whole long morning. Mrs. Fairfax had just written a letter, which was waiting to be posted, so I put on my bonnet and cloak and volunteered to carry it to the hay. The distance, two miles, would be pleasant winter afternoon walk. Having seen Adele comfortably seated in her little chair by Mrs. Fairfax parlor fireside and given her her best wax doll, which I usually kept, enveloped in silver paper in a drawer to play with. God, she is like such a strict governess. Well, like, I think she came from like a school system where she didn't even have a doll. Like she probably doesn't know how that works. That's true. That kind of like nurturing imaginary friendness of a toy. I guess. To play with in a storybook for change of amusement and having replied to her, René Benoit, ma bonne amie, ma chère mademoiselle Jeannette. Revenez bientôt, ma bonne amie, ma chère mademoiselle Jeannette. Merci. With a kiss, I set out. The ground was hard, the air was still, my road was lonely. I walked fast till I got warm, and then I walked slowly to enjoy and analyze the species of pleasure brooding for me in the hour and the situation. It was three o'clock, the church bell tolled. As I passed under the belfry, the charm of the hour lay in its approaching dimness and the low gliding and pale beaming sun. I was a mile from Thornfield, in a lane noted for wild roses in summer, for nuts and blackberries in autumn, and even now possessing a few coral treasures and hips and haws, but whose best winter delight lay in its utter solitude and leafless repose. If a breath of air stirred, it made no sound here, for there was not a holly, not an evergreen to rustle, and they stripped hawthorn and hazel bushes, were as still as the white-worn stones which causewayed the middle of the path. Far and wide on each side there were only fields, where no cattle now browsed, and little brown birds which stirred occasionally in the hedge looked like single russet leaves that had forgotten to drop. This lane inclined uphill, all the way to hay. Having reached the middle, I sat down on a stile which led thence into a field. Gathering my mantle about me and sheltering my hands in my muff, I did not feel the cold, though it froze keenly, as was attested by a sheet of ice covering the causeway, where a little brooklet, now congealed, had overflowed over a rapid thaw some days since. From my seat, I could look down on Thornfield. The gray and battlemented hall was the principal object in the vale below me. Its woods and dark rookery were rose against the west. I lingered till the sun went down amongst the trees and sank crimson and clear behind them. I then turned eastward. On the hilltop above me sat the rising moon, pale yet as a cloud but brightening momentally. So weird. Yes. <laughs> she looked over hay, which, half lost in trees, sent up blue smoke from its few chimneys. It was yet a mile distant, but in the absolute hush I could hear plainly its thin murmurs of life. My ear, too, felt the flow of currents in what dales and depths I could not tell. But there were many hills beyond hay, and doubtless many becks threading their passes. That evening calm betrayed alike the tinkle of the nearest streams, the sow of the most remote. A rude noise broke on these fine ripplings and whisperings, as once so far away <laughs> <laughs> so clear, a positive tramp, tramp. A positive tramp, tramp. 
A metallic clatter which effaced the soft wave wanderings, as in a picture, the solid mass of a crag or the rough boles of a great oak drawn in the dark and strong on the foreground face the aerial distance of azure hill, sunny horizon, and blended clouds where tint melts into tint. It's just so beautiful to read. Remember how boring it was to read about the house? Oh, seriously, but like when she talks about nature, I am entranced. The din was on the causeway. A horse was coming. The windings of the lane yet hid it, but it approached. I was just leaving the stile, yet as the path was narrow, I was still to let it go by. In those days, I was young and all sorts of fancies bright and dark tenanted my mind. The memories of nursery stories were there amongst other rubbish, and when they recurred, maturing youth added to them a vigor and vividness beyond what childhood could give. As this horse approached, and as I watched for it appear through the dusk, I remembered certain of Bessie's tales wherein a figured a North of England spirit called a guy trash. Gee trash? Of course, no footnote, no explanation provided for this term. <laughs> oh wait, I have one. 112. I wish I had a pronunciation for it, though. Branwell Bronte wrote that the guy trash usually appeared in animal form. See Winfred Guerin, Branwell Bronte, 1961. Wright gives examples of the guy trash, G-U-Y, as an evil cow and a great black dog. Is this something the Brontes made up? I guess. Branwell Bronte made it up. Bronte cinematic universe arrives yet again. Mmm, the brother. North of England spirit called Guy Trash, which, in the form of horse, mule, or large dog, haunted solitary ways, and sometimes came upon belated travelers, as this horse was now coming upon me. It was very near, but not yet in sight, when in addition to the tramp tramp, I heard a rush under the hedge, and close down by the hazel stems glided a great dog, whose black and white color made him a distinct object among the trees. It was exactly one mask of Bessie's Guy Trash, a lion-like creature with long hair and a huge head. It passed me, however, quietly enough, and not staying to look up with strange preter canine eyes, and my face as if I have expected it would. The horse followed a tall steed, <laughs> and on its back a rider. The man, the human being, broke the spell at once. Nothing ever rode the guy trash. It was always alone, and goblins, to my notions, though they might tenant the dumb carcasses of beasts, could scarce covet shelter in the commonplace human form. No guy trash was this, only a traveler taking the shortcut to Millcut. He passed, and I went on. A few steps, and I turned, a sliding sound, and an exclamation of, What the deuce is to do now? And a clattering tumble arrested my attention. Man and horse were down. They had slipped on the sheet of ice, which glazed the causeway. The dog came bounding back, and seeing his master in a predicament, and hearing the horse groan, barked till the evening hills echoed the sound, which was deep in proportion to his magnitude. He snuffed round the prostate group, and then he ran up to me. It was all he could do. There was no other help at hand to summon. I obeyed him and walked down to the traveler, by this time struggling himself free of his steed. His efforts were so vigorous, I thought he could not be much hurt, but I asked him the question. I didn't think I would be this excited, but I am exactly this excited. I am so excited. I do think like this entrance is so <laughs> evocative of so many of the books we've talked about, especially during our Ice Wine series. He appeared on horseback like Satan himself, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And then he yeah, has this and, like, a very d- like, normal oh, tumble. Horses falling is always so scary, but... Oh my God, so terrifying. Of course he appears on horseback with a dog bounding ahead of him, but there's this added like, there is something like immediately supernatural about his presence. Are you injured, sir? I think he was swearing. 
but I'm not certain. However, he was pronouncing some formula which prevented him from applying to me directly. Can I do anything? I asked again. You must just stand on one side, he answered as he rose, first to his knees and then to his feet. I did, whereupon began a heaving, stamping, clattering process accompanied by a barking and a bang which removed me effectually some yards distance. But I would not be driven quite away till I saw the event. This was finally fortunate. The horse was re-established and the dog was silenced with a down pilot. The traveler, now stooping, felt his foot and leg as if trying whether they were sound. Apparently something ailed them, for he halted to the style once I had just risen and sat down. I was in the mood for being useful, or at least officious, I think, for I now drew near him again. If you are hurt and want help, sir, I can fetch someone, either from Thornfield Hall or from Hay. Thank you. I shall do. I have no broken bones, only a sprain. And again, he stood up and tried his foot, but the result exhorted an involuntary, ugh. Something of daylight still lingered, and the moon was waxing bright. I could see him plainly. His figure was enveloped in a riding cloak, fur-collared and steel-clasped. Its details were not apparent, but I traced the general points of middle height and considerable breadth of chest. He had a dark face, with stern features and a heavy brow. His eyes and gathered eyebrows looked ireful and thwarted just now. He was past youth, but had not reached middle age. Perhaps he might be 35. I felt no fear of him, and but little shyness. Had he been handsome, heroic-looking young gentleman, I should not have dared to stand thus questioning him against his will and offering my services unasked. I had hardly ever seen a handsome youth, never in my life spoken to one. I had a theoretical reverence and homage for beauty, elegance, gallantry, fascination, but had I met those qualities incarnate in masculine shape, I should have known instinctively that they neither had nor could have sympathy with anything in me, and should have shunned them as one would fire, lightning, or anything else that is bright, but antipathetic. If even this stranger had smiled and been good-humored to me when I addressed him, if he had put off my offer of assistance gaily and with thanks, I should have gone on my way and not felt any vocation to renew inquiries, but the frown, the roughness of the traveler set me at my ease. I retained my station when he waved me to go and announced, I cannot think of leaving you, sir, at so late an hour in this solitary lane till I see you are fit to mount your horse. He looked at me when I said this. He had hardly turned his eyes in my direction before. I should think you ought to be at home yourself, said he, if you have a home in this neighborhood. Where do you come from? From just below. I'm not at all afraid of being out late when it is moonlight. I will run over to Hay for you with pleasure if you wish it. Indeed, I am going there to post a letter. You live just below. Do you mean at the house with the battlements, pointing to Thornfield Hall, in which the moon cast a hoary gleam, bringing it out distinct and pale from the woods, that by contrast with the western sky now seemed one mass of shadow? Yes, sir. Whose house is it? Mr. Rochester's. Do you know Mr. Rochester? No, I've never seen him. He is not resident then? No. Can you tell me where he is? I cannot. You are not a servant at the hall, of course. You are... He stopped, ran his eye over my dress, which, as usual, was quite simple. A black merino cloak, a black beaver beaver bonnet. 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 (laughs) (laughs) Neither of them half fine enough for a lady's maid. He seemed puzzled to decide what I was. I helped him. I am the governess. Ah, the governess, he repeated. Deuce take me if I had not forgotten the governess. And again, my raiment underwent scrutiny. In two minutes, he rose from the style. His face expressed pain when he tried to move. I cannot commission you to fetch help, he said, but you may help me a little yourself if you will be so good. Yes, sir. You have not an umbrella that I can use as a stick? No. 
Try to get hold of my horse's bridle and lead him to me. You are not afraid? I should have been afraid to touch a horse when alone, but when told to do it, I was disposed to obey. Feel like that's a euphemism, but like... I don't know what it is about this guy, but he makes me want to obey and grab a big scary horse. (laughs) I put my muff on the stile and went up to the tall steed. I endeavored to catch the bridle, but it was a spirited thing and would not let me come near its head. I made effort on effort, though in vain. Meantime, I was momentarily afraid of its tramping forefeet. Traveler waited and watched for some time, and at last he laughed. I see, he said. The mountain will never be brought to Muhammad. So all you can do is aid Muhammad to go to the mountain. I must beg of you to come here. I came. Excuse me, he continued. Necessity compels me to make you useful. He laid a heavy hand on my shoulder and leaning on me with some stress, limped on to his horse. Having once caught the bridle, he mastered it directly and sprang to his saddle, grimacing grimly as he made the effort for it wrenched his sprain. Now, said he, releasing his underlip from a hard bite, just hand me my whip. It lies there under the hedge. I sought it and found it. Thank you. Now make haste with the letter to Hay and return as fast as you can. A touch of a spurred heel made his horse first start and rear, then bound away. The dog rushed in its traces. All three vanished. Like heath that in the wilderness, the wild wind whirls away. Can we pause for a moment just to reflect mm-hmm. on Rochester? <laughs> on Rochester? I'm so affected by him already. And I do remember when I first read the book, I was like pretty bored overall. I mean, so much drama swirls around him. And I don't know if it's because I've seen so many physical depictions of him now, interpretations of him, or just because I'm, you know, an older person now myself. I see that he is the swirling drama, you know? There's something so funny and irreverent about him and so detached. And like they immediately recognize it in each other. Like she's like, I would have been afraid to speak and uncomfortable if he had been handsome or kind or any of the things that like are beautiful and like gay. But instead he's like gruff and mean and they're immediate kindreds. Yeah, that's so true. I also love this line. Excuse me, necessity compels me to make you useful. But there's also something that is so like, necessity compels him to make her useful to him, right? In that moment, he means to like physically lean on her. It's just all there. Does any plot happen in this book or is it just always already there? Yeah, it's all there. It's always already there. I took up my muff and walked on. The incident had occurred and was gone for me. It was an incident of no moment, no romance, no interest in a sense, yet it marked with change one single hour of a monotonous life. My help had been needed and claimed. I had given it. I was pleased to have done something trivial, transitory, though the deed was. It was yet an active thing, and I was weary of an existence all passive. The new face, too, was like a picture introduced to the gallery of memory, and it was dissimilar to all the others hanging there, firstly because it was masculine, and secondly because it was dark, strong, and stern. I had it still before me when I entered Hay and slipped the letter into the post office. I saw it as I walked fast down the hill all the way home. When I came to the stile, I stopped a minute, looked round, and listened. An idea that a horse's hooves might ring on the causeway again, and that a rider in a cloak and a guy-trash-like Newfoundland dog might be again apparent. I saw only the hedge and a pollard willow before me, rising up still and straight to meet the moonbeams. I heard only the faintest waft of wind roaming fitful among the trees and round Thornfield, mile distant. And when I glanced down in the direction of the murmur, my eye traversing the hall front caught a light kindling in a window. 
reminded me that I was late and I hurried on. Once again, absolutely beautiful. Completely, utterly lost myself. <laughs> totally. I did not like re-entering Thornfield Hall. To pass its threshold was to return to stagnation, to cross the silent hall, to ascend the darksome staircase, to seek my own lonely little room, and then to meet tranquil Mrs. Fairfax and spend the long winter evening with her and her only, was to quell wholly the faint excitement wakened by my walk, to slip again over my faculties the viewless fetters of an uniform and too still existence of an existence whose very privileges of security and ease I was becoming incapable of appreciating. <laughs> what good it would have done me at that time to have been tossed in the storms of an uncertain, struggling life, to have been taught by rough and bitter experience, to long for the calm amidst which I now repined. Yes, just as much good as it would do a man tired of sitting still in a too easy chair to take a long walk. And just as natural was the wish to stir under my circumstances as it would be under his. I lingered at the gates. I lingered on the lawn. I paced backwards and forwards on the pavement. The shutters of the glass door were closed. I could not see into the interior, and both my eyes and spirit seemed drawn from the gloomy house, from the grey hollow filled with rayless cells that it has appeared to me, to the sky expanded before me, a blue sea absolved from taint of cloud, the moon ascending in solemn march, her orb seeming to look up as she left the hilltops from behind which she had come far and farther below her and aspired to the zenith, midnight dark in its fathomless depth and measureless distance, and for those trembling stars that followed her course, they made my heart tremble, my veins glow when I viewed them. Little things recall us to earth. The clock struck in the hall. That sufficed. I turned from moon and stars, opened a side door, and went in. The hall was not dark, nor yet was it lit only by the high-hung bronze lamp. A warm glow suffused both it and the lower steps of the oak staircase. This ruddy shine issued from the great dining room, whose two-leaved door stood open and showed a genial fire in the grate, glancing on marble hearth and brass fire irons and revealing purple draperies and polished furniture in the most pleasant radiance. It revealed, too, a group near the mantelpiece. I had scarcely caught it, and scarcely became aware of a cheerful mingling of voices, amongst which I seemed to distinguish the tones of Adele when the door closed. I hastened to Mrs. Fairfax's room. There was a fire there, too, but no candle and no Miss Fairfax. Instead, all alone, sitting upright on the rug and gazing with gravity at the blaze, I beheld a great black-and-white long-haired dog, just like the guy trash of the lane. It was so like it that I went forward and said, Pilot? And the thing got up and came to me and snuffled me. I caressed him and he wagged his great tail, but he looked an eerie creature to be alone with and I could not tell whence he had come. I rang the bell, for I wanted a candle, and I wanted too to get an account of this visitant. Leah entered. What dog is this? He came with Master. With whom? With Master, Mr. Rochester. He's just arrived. Indeed, and is Miss Fairfax with him? Yes, is Miss Adela, there in the dining room. And John is gone for the surgeon. The master's had an accident. His horse fell, and his ankle is sprained. Did the horse fall in Hay Lane? Yes, coming down the hill. It slipped on some ice. Ah, bring me a candle, will you, Leah? Leah brought it. She entered, followed by Mrs. Fairfax, who repeated the news, adding that Mr. Carter, the surgeon, was come, and was now with Mr. Rochester. Then she hurried out to give orders about tea, and I went upstairs to take off my things. Mr. Rochester is come. 
Also, he's like traveling the world with this giant newfie. I mean, you got to have friends, especially if you're unpleasant and stern. Hmm. Yeah. Quite a momentous chapter, I should say. It's funny, too, because like there's so many echoes and ripples of this meeting in romances Mm -hmm. that we've read where it's like, you know, he is like the satanic figure, but then he's immediately humbled. And there's like this weird sort of like negotiation of bodies to like right the embarrassing Mm -hmm. situation and get them on their way. It is. It's quite humorous and also just like deeply affecting and like her just like pacing in front of the house not wanting to go in yeah her pacing and also her pacing on the parapet i want to go back to the beginning of the chapter where she's doing that i don't feel like i'm revealing too much by being like she's met bertha before she meets mr rochester because i think anyone who would endeavor to read this book for the first time in the 21st century probably knows (laughs) at least something about bertha and um I'm thinking about her her feminist screed, right, on the roof. And her, I happen to not actually like children, thank you very much, right? And this is definitely a feminist text. But I think there's a really interesting duality that struck me and probably is something that I have read before. And so I'm just saying this is probably very obvious and existent. But like the consciousness of Charlotte Bronte's feminism is present in Jane. But there, there are two feminist texts here. And the underlying one is the story of Bertha, which is always within this text, right? From the moment we arrive. And Bertha is very much, I think, the subconscious. Like that's not the character that Charlotte's over identifying with but that is still within her and I think without going into too much detail like not really at the risk of giving too much away but without going into too much detail I think that hearing Jane's very clearly stated outline of like I'm just as equal as men I have the same desires right is really has really lost its utility perhaps by the time we arrive to the 21st century, but I still think there's so much of Bertha that we still need to uncover and to sink our fingers into and what her existence is and the way she chooses to manage that existence. Or has choice stripped from her. And then the other element of Jane's final choice and what that means in terms of this being a feminist text. I think choice and the ability to make choices and like who gets an enlarged playing field of choices and who has their choices curtailed. But is yet still making very powerful choices. In a smaller and smaller box. Yes. And more interesting choices and certainly more subversive choices. Right. And I think that's actually like part of the stickiness because like reading Jane's screed on the parapet of like boys too if they only had to do embroidering and like thinking about making bags would go crazy and like I love that there's all of this language about fetters and inmates and imprisonment and confinement but like Jane has found ways to like really unconfine herself and like unfetter herself from both her background and like her literal geography but she is nowhere near Bertha's level I think about that like meme with the three brains right And it's like the first one is Miss Fairfax, the second one is Jane, and the third one is Bertha Mason. Yeah, exactly. And I think that there's something really powerful in that, but there's also something here and like Jane's feminism is very personal 
and like singular to her. But she talks about like womankind, but she doesn't see like freedom for Mrs. Fairfax or Adele or anyone else. And that's what I mean about like this idea of like a singularity of like she wants freedom for herself and then like all womankind, but she can't like project it mm-hmm. even like that very next step out to like the people around her. And that feels very modern to me. Yeah. And that's very white feminism, right? And I think there's so much in that and that like I think Jane is the consciousness of the text and Bertha is the subconsciousness. And I think we all have that ability within us to be that punk rock, that like problematic for the status quo. You know, we've got to get there for me to really be confident in this. But I don't feel like the text is conscientious of Bertha as I am going to qualitate it like better than Jane, right? No, the text doesn't think that at all. No, which is why uh, the wide Sargos disease serves such a wonderful utility beyond being, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we should maybe revisit wide Sargos see here pretty quick and do like a little short bit on it, discussion of it. I think we should too. Because once again, it's not canon. <laughs> so like, I don't know how much of that book is actually literally in here mm-hmm. just because I've never encountered it in that way. I think it's right to think about the ways in which this text does recognize Bertha and Jane as duality, but also like it comes to a definitive conclusion. Yeah. And the choices Jane makes are actually, you know, problematic. Yeah. And I think it comes from like this inability, like the idea that you could extend compassion to like all womankind, but you can't extend it to like Mrs. Fairfax or Sophie the women in your immediate vicinity. Yeah. I know whenever we did our Aha Shake Heartbreak series, we suggested that the sheiks were like the original sin of romance. Mm-hmm. But I'm starting to think if it isn't the HEA in Jane Eyre as the original sin, which is a big, but you know, we're getting way ahead of ourselves. We're so excited. We just met Rochester. We just heard spooky laughter right we don't know fully (laughs) we're getting way ahead of ourselves we're so excited we know where the road goes but we don't know what we're gonna find when we get there yes exactly we know where it's going but we don't know what we're gonna find but already i'm starting to see like little bits of shrapnel all around narrowing in on ground zero yes i think that's a good way of thinking about it any other thoughts no this was really good Chapter 12. What a delicious introduction. Delicious. He's so funny. I forgot that he has good wit in his dialogue. Yes, that he is genuinely very learned and very funny. Like, I don't know if you guys caught this, but like his horse is named Muhammad and like the mountain has to come to Muhammad. He's referring to himself as the mountain there. Oh, God. Rochester is. He's educated and funny and like... He's not particularly handsome, right? He doesn't have the money Darcy has. I'm just saying, like, okay, let's let's actually go to our first question. I think now is a good time to formally redress. We've hit a signpost moment for it, right? We've just met Rochester. Who are you actually going to go for in a bar? Rochester or Darcy? Rochester's funny. Darcy's shy, but he comes off as aloof and, like, snobbish. Aloof is interesting, right? Aloof is interesting. Handsome is interesting. Very, very, very wealthy is interesting. He is very handsome. Very wealthy. Shy. I mean, people like a challenge, right? And then you got this like funny guy at the other end of the bar who's like in nice clothes. A little bit rough. A little bit rough around the edges. His energy is expelled rather than taking in the energy, right? Mm -hmm. I think of Darcy as like a 
vacuum, right, that calls your attention because he sucks. <laughs> At the beginning. He's more of like a, a black hole and Rochester's more of a supernova. You know, it's funny because like maybe I'd have to reread the introduction of Darcy again because like other people treat him like a black hole. But when he shows up on the page for Elizabeth, I'm not sure that he is one. And like that's what I mean, because I'm actually more surprised by the similarities of Darcy and Rochester. Like I initially thought they would be much more different. But like Darcy is dark and brooding and not clever or funny. But like the things that he does say lets Elizabeth know that he's smart. Let's see if we can find that passage really quickly. It's like, we can put this in a mini episode. Do a close read of the first passage of... The two introductions. The two introductions. Yeah, or we could do it as like a blog post. But we will either confirm or deny what I think is probably true. And I'm very proud of the conclusion I came to. Black hole versus supernova. Black hole versus supernova. But a much more simple question to answer. Who are you going to approach at a bar? I know I would I would approach Rochester. Yeah, I would super duper approach Rochester. He's cracking jokes. He is literally approachable. Yeah. Whereas Darcy is literally not. Like expressly in the text. Like <laughs> the fact that Rochester isn't beautiful or kind or f- doing those things. Like that is the reason he is literally approachable. Like if he had been those things, Jane wouldn't have approached him. We definitely need to put a thumbtack in that, right? And put it on our bulletin board because it will be a fact that I think is going to be easily forgotten is how at ease and comfortable and approachable Jane felt around him immediately. Yeah, it is an immediate ground laying that like is in direct opposition to the immediate ground laying that Elizabeth and Darcy encounter. But also I think the way that Jane is going to seek her footing with Rochester in the future. That's true. And also like it's worth noting that like The day before she meets Rochester, really the afternoon before she meets him, she's restless. She wants out. She wants a change. She's like a stagnant pool that wants to be disturbed. Elizabeth is not in that situation. Right. And into Jane's life comes a very disturbing force. And into Elizabeth's life comes a very placating force. A still pond versus a gushing, what was their word for creek? (laughs) Burke. A gushing Burke. A gushing Burke. You want a gushing Burke or a little pond? I want a gushing Burke. I want a gushing Burke in my fiction, but I do feel like in my life I have sought out placid ponds. Me too. And I think that's one of the other things to think about too. And like for the mini episode that we have about this where it's... With my therapist. Oh, in the mini episode. In the mini episode where we talk about like the situation that Elizabeth finds herself in when she meets Darcy versus the situation that Jane finds herself in when she meets the Rochester. Because I think you're right to say that like Darcy functions as placidity to a point, but he doesn't evoke placidity in Elizabeth. And like... Jane's already disturbed. She's unhappy. She wants further disturbance. And like, that's what Rochester gives her. Yeah. I find him immediately appealing. And I did not expect like... I just love how funny he is. I can't get over like, he seems like a supernatural force from the moment we first like, we don't even see him. We hear the clomp clomp or whatever. The tramp tramp of his dog. Tramp tramp. And she's immediately brought to mind of all of these like mysterious creatures. Guy trash. The guy trash. Which like hashtag guy trash. Hashtag guy trash Mr. Rochester. (laughs) Pretty good. (laughs) Has he got any peculiarities? 
Thanks, Bramwell Bronte. I also, I know so many people like that who like, you would have a full-on Rochester and you'd be like, what's that guy like? And they'd be like, I mean, he's fine. That person actually exists. Oh, yeah. Like, more of them than don't. Many times over. And it's like, do you not see this supernova? Do you not see this guy trash? This, like, guy trash right here? Are you kidding me? No peculiarities. I'm going to say first impressions. (laughs) All peculiarities. (laughs) All of them. I love the name Pilot for a dog. I do, too. I was very into that. And I also love that she immediately uses it on the dog. She's like, Pilot, what are you doing here? I know you. Also, Mr. Rochester not being particularly handsome. I'm obsessed with Orson Welles. And he was always so conscious of his like lack of attractiveness and was also very like, like when he made Citizen Kane, he has full on prosthetics on his face that whole time, but he only did subtle prosthetics to make himself look more handsome as a young man. And he like maintained this special nose he made for himself, which is like, why bother? It's because he wanted to be just like a little bit more handsome. And so I feel like, I know that when Orson Welles read this book, he was like, I want to be Mr. Rochester. (laughs) And indeed was. Yeah, I think when Orson Welles read this book, he's like, it, me, I, it. And like, I can't imagine anyone else doing Rochester in that 1930s version. Well, I mean, like I can, yeah, people have done a great job. Other people have done a great job with Rochester. Yeah, I think Michael Fassbender's too pretty to be Rochester, but he really captured the spirit. I thought he was good because he's kind of sharky handsome. Mm-hmm. I can see that. Like a little scary. Mm-hmm. That's how I feel about Bradley Cooper. Like he's got a wolfishness to him, but I don't think he'd be a very good Rochester. I don't think he's a good actor, but he has a face that says he'll hurt you. Yeah, well, it, it's like this very like all-American football player face and then a very pointy nose. Mm-hmm. A face that definitely is like, I don't know what consent is. Yeah, exactly. Scary in a very specific way. <laughs> yeah, scary in a very specific way. Whereas like Michael Fassbender's face is scary in kind of like a vague animalistic way and not like a, a specific horror story that exists in the world. Yeah, super true. Super true. I can't think of anyone else I would cast as Rochester. Like if someone was like, you have to pick a Rochester. Yeah, I think this is actually a really good question for social media. Like if you had to pick a Rochester that isn't Fassbender or Orson Welles, who would you pick? Yeah, no handsomes. Or if they are handsome, they have to be weird handsome. Yeah, like a more (laughs) stout Adrian Brody. Yes. Adrian Brody is very much the mistress of melon hero, very much. Very much so. Like in the image of, but not Rochester. Kind of. It's because like when he smiles and like that's one of the things about Rochester where it's like when he softens, he becomes like the sun and super handsome. And it's like that situational awareness of a person where like the more you get to know them, the more attractive they become to you, which happens to Darcy too. It just doesn't happen in the same way. All right. Anything else? No, that's all I've got. All right, with that, loosen your Janes. But never your heirs. Or should we say loosen your misters? But never your Chesters? Rochesters. I said mister. Oh, but never your Rochers? Rochesters. Loosen your misters. But never your Rochesters. <laughs> 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 <laughs>